I'm Finn J.D. John, F.J. at OffbeatOregon.com, and this is the Daily Offbeat Oregon History Podcast. Today we have for you a brand new episode just come out from under the 60-day embargo period during which our participating newspapers have exclusive rights. Thanks for downloading, and I hope you enjoy the show. This story was first published on September 1st of 2022 under the headline, Former Whorehouse is a Historical Treasure Today. Here we go. To the average Oregon City resident, there wasn't much to celebrate in the vacant, dilapidated old house by the foot of Willamette Falls. The house had, until a few years before, been known as the Phoenix Hotel, and it had been a low-rent boarding house with a bad reputation. Popular rumor was that the Phoenix had been an outright bordello. Conveniently located right in the heart of what was then Oregon City's industrial core, it would have been a handy place for workers in the woolen mills and paper manufactories and sawmills and other operations that took advantage of the plentiful water power of the falls. No doubt it did an especially brisk business every payday. It can't have been brisk enough, though, because in 1906 the owners offered to sell the building and land to the city of Oregon City. There was a brief flurry of interest, and Mayor E.G. Caulfield got very excited about it. But when the proposal was put to a referendum, the voters quashed the deal, and the old brothel was instead sold to the Hawley Pulp and Paper Company, which wanted the land to expand some of its adjacent facilities. When that happened, the new mayor, W.E. Carl, dropped by to talk to Mr. Hawley. He was hoping to arrange some kind of a deal to save the house. Hawley was willing to help. He said he'd gladly donate the building to the city if they could move it off the property. Carl agreed to see what he could do. Now, this may seem like an awful lot of trouble for people to be going through to save an old whorehouse from the wrecking ball. The thing was, though, the Phoenix Hotel had been no ordinary whorehouse. It had been built in 1846, before Oregon was a state or even officially an American territory, by the father of Oregon himself, Dr. John McLaughlin head of the Hudson's Bay Company's Northwest Operations. McLaughlin had been posted as chief factor for the company in Fort Vancouver in 1825, when the Oregon Territory was still under joint occupancy, and it wasn't clear whether it would end up being part of Canada or the U.S. Later, in the 1820s, McLaughlin had staked a land claim at Willamette Falls and platted Oregon City. As the Oregon Trail opened up, it started becoming obvious that the huge influx of American settlers was messing up the U.S.-Britain Joint Occupancy Treaty, pushing the territory toward full U.S. control by sheer numbers. McLaughlin, of course, was on the British side of things, but when, in the mid-1840s, American emigrants started staggering into Fort Vancouver, sick and exhausted and starving from the rigors of the Oregon Trail, he took them in and gave them shelter and supplies on credit. This made him increasingly unpopular with his bosses back east, who would have preferred a more hard-nosed attitude toward the emigrants. So to get rid of him, they kicked him upstairs, quote-unquote promoted him to another post east of the Rocky Mountains. Well, this was checkmate for McLaughlin. If he accepted the promotion, he'd have to abandon his land claim at Willamette Falls, which was already very valuable and only getting more so. But the only way to decline the promotion was to retire from the HBC which, as they had expected, was the option he took. 
He settled down at the falls and applied for American citizenship, which he received in 1851. But by now most of the Oregon City residents were Protestants, and McLaughlin was Catholic. This would be no big deal today, and the Hudson's Bay Company employees also were very broad-minded about such things, half of them being French voyageurs after all. But plenty of the American immigrants were not. To make matters worse, there had been an unfortunate incident eight years earlier, when McLaughlin had publicly attacked and thrashed Fort Vancouver's Anglican chaplain Herbert Beaver in the courtyard at the fort. The Reverend Beaver, who appears to have been a clergyman of the Mr. Collins of Pride and Prejudice type, had actually referred to McLaughlin's wife, Marguerite, as, quote, a female of notoriously loose character, and as McLaughlin's kept mistress. Their marriage ceremony had not been an Anglican one in an official report. Reverend Beaver apparently did not realize, or maybe he did realize, that this report was going to be passing through McLaughlin's hands for review on its way back east. In any case, it met with a lively reception when it arrived there. But however deserved this public drubbing may or may not have been, it didn't do much for McLaughlin's reputation among Protestants. So McLaughlin, although he was the most prominent citizen of Oregon City, had plenty of enemies there and some of them got busy challenging his land claims. Some of those challenges were successful, but enough was left for McLaughlin to finish his life in comfort and to build the biggest, nicest house in the state for his wife and family. The house was a great, big, colonial-style two-story residence with numerous rooms upstairs for guests. These guest rooms, of course, would be super useful decades later when the place became the Phoenix Hotel. John McLaughlin died in 1857, and Marguerite followed three years later, and after that for a time, other family members lived in the house, but by 1867 they had all died or moved out, and the house was sold and began its transformation from White House to Whorehouse. By 1908, when Hawley Pulp and Paper bought the place, John McLaughlin was universally recognized in Oregon City as one of the most important figures in state history, but he was not as universally loved as he was respected. Plenty of people in Oregon City wanted nothing to do with him or with his old house. Luckily for all of us, Eva Emery Dye was not one of them. You may recognize Eva Emery Dye's name from the story of Oregon's Chautauqua movement. An Oregon City resident, she was a famous author and the main power behind the Gladstone Chautauqua, the biggest one in Oregon. Her most successful book had been a biography of McLaughlin, and when she learned what was planned for his house, she turned her considerable organizational skills into a bid to save it. At first, things looked like they'd be smooth sailing. The state legislature passed a bill allocating funds to preserve the house, but then Governor George Chamberlain vetoed it, putting everything back to square one. So the Oregon City City Council stepped up, offering to donate the building and provide a spot to which to move it if private donors would cover the transportation and restoration costs. The spot they picked was in the city park at the top of Singer Hill. Dye and her allies thought that that sounded just fine and promptly formed the McLaughlin Memorial Association, one of the first historic preservation organizations in state history, if not the first, to raise the necessary money. This appears to have been the point at which Oregon City's anti-McLaughlin forces realized it was really going to happen. It's not entirely clear why they cared so deeply about the old house, most likely it was a coalition of residents who considered any former whorehouse to be irredeemably tainted with sin, along with others who hated Catholics enough to oppose memorializing McLaughlin. 
Whatever their motives, they immediately got busy mounting a fierce resistance to anything short of outright demolition of the old house. First, they got an injunction barring the building from being moved. The association appealed to the local court, the judge threw it out, and work went on. While the house was being moved, the opposition apparently bided its time. It probably looked to them like the problem was going to solve itself when the house reached the bottom of Singer Hill. Singer Hill, as you may know, is not really a hill per se, but rather a narrow roadbed cut into the side of the great rocky bluff running through the middle of downtown Oregon City, towering hundreds of feet over the river. It's the same bluff that Oregon City's famous municipal elevator serves, a block and a half away to the south. Looking back and forth from the tiny, narrow roadway to the great ramshackle house, most onlookers must have thought that there was just no way this would work. But it did. Old photographs show the process. The building was winched up the hill inch by inch using cables powered by a capstan wheel turned by a single horse. The house was considerably wider than the road up the hill, and at one point it was sticking so far over the edge of the cliff that it nearly toppled off to tumble down the hill. The workers had to run down to the river for sand and gravel to dump on the floors of the inboard side of the house to keep the center of gravity over land instead of air. When the house was finally at the top, at a cost of $600, another injunction was served, seeking to prevent it from being set on the foundation that they had built for it in the park. This one was quickly dismissed, and the house was placed there, and then a guard had to be put on it as anonymous arson threats came in from frustrated anti-McLaughlinites, but eventually the drama subsided, and on September 5, 1909, the house was officially dedicated in a memorial service for McLaughlin. Today, the John McLaughlin House is something of a municipal treasure for Oregon City and regularly attracts visitors from all over the country. Officially, it's part of Fort Vancouver National Historic Site, most of which is, of course, miles to the north across the Columbia River and is administered by the National Park System. So if you have a National Parks Pass, you can visit it for free. In any case, if you should go see it, which you absolutely should, take a little detour over onto Singer's Hill afterwards and try to visualize that enormous house being winched up that narrow rock-lined roadway by one single hard-working horse. Key sources in this story include works by Vera Caulfield, Sherry Bartlett Brown, the McLaughlin Memorial Association website, and correspondence with Oregon City historian Richard Matthews. Well, that is our show for today. Thanks again for listening, and I do hope you enjoyed it. This podcast is part of Offbeat Oregon History, a public history resource for the state we love. Check out our hub page at offbeatoregon.com to explore all the other things we do or to find the full citations and visuals that go with today's show. This podcast is covered under a Creative Commons license. For details of that, see offbeatoregon.com cc. Our theme music is by the Atlas String Band and was written by Carmen Ficarra. Listen and download more at atlasstringband.com. Offbeat Oregon history episodes come around once per weekday, usually around 6 a.m. So it won't be long before the next episode is up on your device and ready for you to queue up and enjoy. Until then, go out and fill up the rest of the day and the weekend with good stuff. Bye now. Bye now.